Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in today. Excited to introduce many of you out there in RSL Nation on the latest Bleeding Claret and Cobalt podcast to the newly named, titled, I should say, Director of Sports Medicine. I refer to him as the head athletic trainer for Real Salt Lake. Theron ends. Theron entering his 2021 season as his fourth with Real Salt Lake, but this is a guy who's been around Major League Soccer for, um, I'm going to say, 22 years now. I believe he started in 1999 with the hated Colorado Rapids, uh, moved on to Houston, and then uh, now has come to Salt Lake. Theron, one of the all-time great guys in and around Major League Soccer. We talk about what a small world it is. We spend the first part of this uh, session talking a lot about how the COVID pandemic has changed the way um, he has to approach his daily job and how it's enabled him the opportunity, is, I guess a silver lining, Ryan, for him to interact with all aspects of the organization through COVID testing and protocols, not just you know the coaches and the players. But Theron, one of the more accomplished guys in the history of Major League Soccer, wants to be behind the scenes, but it's fascinating, I think, for me, and hopefully for you, as we kind of pick his brain about the psychology role that trainers play, balancing young players, old players, coaches, um, concussions, COVID, a lot of different injuries and maladies, and and just trying to keep everybody uh, moving forward so they can perform to the best of the abilities. Um, but Ryan, what did you latch on to, or what did you learn hearing uh, Theron and I kind of talk for a little less than an hour here? Well, it's just uh, one of the, the things, like I think the tagline that I put into the the host when I was putting up this this podcast was like, get to know ourselves from the inside out. Just right. something that came into my head like that. But when you get to guys like uh, like Theron, you know, this is like, the, this is literally the guts of the of RSL. You know, this is what makes, this is the beating heart of RSL is like the, the medical staff. And, uh, you know, getting to know those guys when you when you spend some time around the club and you these guys are, you know, wherever the players are, these guys are there. And you see it on, you know, and just the professionalism and the, the enthusiasm they have for their job is like infectious. I don't know. It's a good group of people. It's just, there's, I, it's always something interesting to come that comes from a conversation with somebody in the medical staff. Yeah. As you get into it with them, I mean, he's been everywhere. Theron's been everywhere. And I mean, the things that he's seen, like, yeah, I mean, what, what a crazy job. It is crazy. And, and one of the things that we get into a little bit is, is him contrasting what it was like being an intern at an NFL team for a year, 20 plus years ago to being an MLS athletic trainer when he was literally the only full-time guy managing a locker room, to now his current job uh, with Real Salt Lake is managing a staff, I think he said eight or nine people, from the academy teams to the Monarchs to RSL, and then COVID is a full-time job. So, um, you know, 2021, obviously, COVID is, is going to be another big factor um, but he talks a little bit about some of the idiosyncrasies of this market of working with the health department, getting vaccinations out, hopefully getting fans back in the stadium at Rio Tinto. I think, uh, one of my favorite lines from Theron was, you know, he worked in the league when stadiums were empty because nobody wanted to come to games to now he's going to games that people aren't allowed to go to and, and all the 
progress from a sports science standpoint, a nutrition standpoint, uh, the infrastructure, the facilities that we have here at Salt Lake. He, he I think, gives us some some needed perspective on uh, on how much he appreciates the situation around him, the people around him. And like you said, those people are really the heartbeat of the club. So it's cool to hear him talk about Pablo Mastroeni's history with him as both a player and now as an assistant coach, uh, the evolution of Freddie Juarez and how he manages not just the medical team, but the whole locker room. So really excited to bring you this conversation as uh, as we do here on Bleeding Claret and Cobalt with RSL head athletic trainer slash director of sports medicine, Theron Enns. All right, everybody, welcome back in. Bleeding Claret and Cobalt, your host, Trey Fitzgerald, here with the producer, Ryan Hale. I used to call him the man, the myth, the legend, but that's overplayed. I call him the super producer. I got to come up with a synonym for that. But we're we're happy to be back with another episode. Today's guest, Real Salt Lake, head ATC athletic trainer, Theron Enns. Theron, thanks for taking the time to come down. Trey, thanks for the invite. Um, what does ATC stand for? So I'm an athletic trainer who is certified. Okay. So that's our professional credential. And so. then some trainers have other initials behind their titles. Yeah. And you look in the sports medicine world, you have physical therapists, PTs, you okay. have massage therapists, licensed massage therapists, LMTs. Okay. Um, there's additional things you can put behind your credentials, whether that's your educational degree, you know, master's of arts. Mm-hmm. Um, some people have doctorates. You can have different certifications. So yeah. it, you can see kind of an alphabet soup sometimes behind people's names, but I just try and keep it simple and respect the profession and just say, there and ends AT. And you are, correct me if I'm wrong, heading into your fourth season with Salt Lake? This will be my fourth season coming yeah, up in so 2021. So preseason 18 is, I think, when, when we reconnected. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. so just a little background, and Theron, please correct me. So I was with the Rapids in 96 uh, doing ticket sales and PR, and then I took a PR job at the league, you arrived in Colorado in 99? Preseason of 99, yep. Okay, and was that your first athletic training job with a pro team, or where had you been before Colorado? I came to Colorado from New York, where I had spent a season-long position with the New York Jets in the NFL. Oh, sweet. Yep. Okay, and uh, if I recall... The Jets were actually pretty good then, right? That was was that the Parcells Jets? Yeah, I was one game away from a Super Bowl. We actually lost to your Broncos. That's right, in, uh, Mile High. I was so. gonna I was gonna say I remember sitting in a crowded apartment in New York City watching that AFC Championship. I was the lone Broncos fan. I was not very popular. So yeah, how would you uh, how would you compare uh, the day to day athletic training of a of a what fifty three man squad plus another 15, I guess, practice squad players in the NFL to, uh, I mean, 99 MLS rosters were probably around 24 players, right? I think they might have been 20 at that time. Okay. Yeah, I think we were transitioning. And you had guys from... making 12 grand a year and oh, that gosh, kind of stuff. Oh, gosh, I think they were making less than that. Yeah, but eight yeah, grand. It was, it was quite a change. I mean, we know that the NFL, that American football is the biggest sport in sure. this country, has the most money. Um, may not be have been around as long as baseball, um, but it definitely is entrenched in mm-hmm. you know our society. So, I mean, I went from a world where it was you know huge amounts of money, budgets, facilities, yeah. all that stuff, to the early years of MLS, and it was you know it was a bit of a shock, a bit mm-hmm. of a change, you know. 
Um, back then, there was this almost sense that it was, you know, kind of a gap year for some of these kids, you know, okay. got out of college. What am I going to do with myself? I'll play, yeah. try this pro soccer thing for a couple of years, and then I'll go get that job, you know, that I was going to get anyway in the corporate world. Yeah, sure. So it was a bit of an adjustment to go from from that to, to MLS. Yeah, I am... Um... So around that time, I did leave MLS for a year, went and did the XFL thing, and it was a lot of former NFL guys um, with the Vegas team in the XFL, which is where I was. But one of the things they always said is, in the NFL, everything is so specialized. Like every equipment staff or training staff or PR staff or whatever, you know, each intern, each person had one very specific job that they would do eight, ten hours a day. And obviously, as we know in MLS, even still, there's a little more specialization now. But we've all had to be jack-of-all-trades across many, many disciplines, et cetera. So um, I guess that's a good segue for us to talk about. How would you compare uh, your first year in MLS to all the resources you have at your disposal now? Yeah, so, I mean, it's been dramatic change over the 20-plus years I've been doing this yeah. now. Um when I started, I was the assistant athletic trainer and equipment manager. That's oh. How, that's how I got my foot in the door. Okay. Um, it was just a way for them to kind of combine some positions, get somebody hired. Yeah. Um, I saw it as a foot in the door. I mean, I didn't want to be an equipment manager yeah. the rest of my life, but I wanted my foot in the door in a growing league. Um, so I did, I did multiple roles back then. So there was a head trainer. I was the assistant. There was two of us. I had come from a staff of six in the NFL. Wow. So I entered the MLS within a year and a half, I become the head trainer, uh, have an assistant and it's just the two of us for a number of years. And that's grown over time. Now yeah. you've added part-time or full-time massage therapists. You've added a third athletic trainer. Mm -hmm. Teams have a Rolodex of specialists to call when they need things, whether it's chiropractors or orthopedic surgeons. Depending or, on their sponsorship deals. Yeah, sponsorship <laughs> deals are part of it. Um, yeah. But the league does have certain requirements. Sure. I mean, I've got a list of probably 20 specialties that I need to have wow. on call at any time if any of our players you know, need help. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we have a large group now that, that cares for players. and. RSL is, you know, a growing organization. In fact, it's not just RSL MLS, yeah. right? We have the Monarchs. We had the Royals. We have the Academy. We now have a basketball academy. Sure. So now the staff, I'm, I'm now the director of sports medicine right. as well as the head trainer. Okay. I now oversee eight or nine staff members yeah. on the medical side on yeah. a daily basis. That's not even the people that we call when we need specialty needs or having the doctors come in. That's just the people in the building working with each of the teams. And on top of it, you've got a pandemic um, <laughs> yes. for the last you know year, year plus. And that's going to be a big topic, I think, for our conversations today is um, the lessons learned not only by you and your staff, but by the league and contrasting, I think, you know, a, a bubble situation in Orlando and the ever-changing education, policies, et cetera, surrounding uh, COVID over the last year. And we don't need to get into the political side of things, but what has been your greatest, I guess, source of pride and also greatest challenge in, in keeping um, players available for training and for games over, over uh, 2020? I guess the biggest challenge has been the unknown, and I think yeah. everybody's dealt with that. It doesn't matter if you're in pro sports or you're just an average citizen who you know mm -hmm. is trying to get through this. Um, things were changing. Nobody knew about the disease. They didn't know 
how to stop the virus, you know, the, the fear of the unknown. Um, we deal with that, you know, sure. every day. We don't know whether tests are going to come back, whether somebody's going to have to be held out, whether we're going to have to contact trace, whether we're going to have to get a new protocol that we have to follow and change how we've done our routine. So that unknown was probably the biggest challenge for me, for the staff, for everybody. Yeah. Um, so it, it made for a, a very stressful, you know, 2020. Um, biggest source of pride out of this whole thing. I I feel like I've risen to the occasion yeah. and done everything that I can for the organization. It's allowed me to interact with parts of the organization that I don't normally sure. um, deal with. You know, as an athletic trainer, it's you, the coaches, and the players. Right. Right. You don't interact a lot with media. You don't interact a lot with ticketing or the front office or the foundation. COVID touched every part of the organization, right. whether it was staff members getting it or requests for help, or a lot of it was me. I just became the point person for all COVID questions. Mm. Like my phone always rings. Hey, Theron, can we do this? Hey, Theron, can we do that? Yeah. What does the league say about this? Yeah. So yeah, it, it helped me kind of reach a point in the in the organization, even after three years where I still didn't know everybody. Yeah. You know, we're not the biggest organization in the world, but right. you still don't cross paths with everybody. So it, it's allowed me to, to interact with every corner of the organization. And I think that's been a, a good thing. Well, and having, you know, obviously having so many different segments of the organization under one roof in Harriman. Yeah. You have games at Rio Tinto. Yep. Um, you have practice fields and obviously things evolved over the course of the season. Uh, there's a lot of directions we could go. I guess one of the first things I want to ask is what what is the back and forth like with with you and your colleagues at different teams with the league? I assume it's a rapidly um, amorphous but evolving policy. It's not all just top-down. The league's not just taking whatever the CDC says because there's a lot of localization around this pandemic as well, right? Yeah, I mean, the league is obviously putting out memos, putting out uh, medical updates, uh, rules requirements mm -hmm. as they learn things. Mm -hmm. um, MLS has a chief medical officer, okay. and she interacts with the chief medical officers of the other big sports. They okay. kind of have a regular call, and they so talk about— sharing best practices. Yeah, what yeah. works, what doesn't work. I mean, a lot of this started with the NBA, right? Because yeah. it was the jazz. I mean, I right. vividly remember <laughs> sitting on my couch when they said this game is canceled because of COVID— mm. And I literally looked at my wife and I said, uh-oh, because I knew in this small town yeah. that we had direct interactions between their locker room and our locker room. Sure. So literally I was on the phone that afternoon making calls of, was this person in our locker room after they were in the jazz locker room? Did this person uh -huh. interact with that person? It started that quickly for me. It was literally that night. So you're literally trying to identify patient zero. <laughs> Uh, or patient one, I guess. Yeah, uh, we, we, we had that. some concerns about that. Sure. There were some legitimate concerns, some close enough interactions. In, in hindsight now, we would yeah. call that, you know, that pre-48 hour period before somebody tests positive. Okay. Um, you worry about where they're around people before sure. they start developing symptoms. We had people that were in direct, you know, six foot close sure. contact with some of the individuals that were infected and became public figures. And so we had to quickly identify, okay, where are we at? Is everybody okay? Who needs to be where? And yeah, it, it got real, really quick for me. And I imagine you have to prioritize so many things quickly in those situations, right? Because your first concern, I imagine, is the health and well-being of, of you know, the immediate locker room. But you've got, you know, coaches' needs and wants. You've got uh, probably legal issues surrounding the public 
identification or the nature of of um, privacy around this illness. And as we've all learned a lot over the last year, you've got after effects and and other vectors that can just take off exponentially quickly, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously the the health and and well-being of our athletes, our coaches, our staff is is, you know, number one priority mm-hmm. for us. Um but it quickly becomes, you know, a difficult situation to to navigate. Um you find out somebody's positive, suddenly everybody wants to know who's positive on the team. You right. know, we went from that kind of early panic sure. where every day we got a test result, people were like, I need to know who has who it. Is it? Yeah. Who is it? You know, and you know, teammates know things and sure. they share and, and that's fine. But there's that fine line between, you know, legal and what you can say, can't say, how you how you communicate it, you know, and... Well, and you're trying to manage the unknown. Right. And you're also yeah. trying to manage a little bit of panic, right? Yeah. I mean, in those early days, everybody thought this is the most deadly disease. Right. If I even think about it, I'm going to get it. And what does that mean? You know, everybody's got a different perspective on sure. it. You have people that have been hit with it personally. They've lost loved ones. You have people that... It doesn't affect them. I mean, in general, I deal with uh, 30, 20-something healthy individuals who yeah. are very robust and healthy and don't have underlying conditions, don't have pre-existing right. conditions. So for them, sometimes it's not that real because it doesn't hit them. Even when they have cases or they know people in the same age group or on other teams, it's not as bad as it is for some other individuals. Sure. You know, so it's a... Uh, it was a definite time of trying to figure things out and trying to, you know, figure out the best way to go through things. And I'm not going to say we were perfect as we started. We've learned mm-hmm. as, and evolved as we've gone along, similar to the MLS and the protocols. Things yeah. change as they learn how to do it better, sure. which just means I'm constantly reviewing memos and emails and trying to update things. And it frustrates people because yeah. I became the guy that started to tell everybody, you can't do this, you can't do this, you have to do it this way, yeah. you have to do this. Nobody likes to have their freedoms or sure. their routine upset, yeah. but 2020 was nothing but a interruption of people's normal routines. Yeah. And so now, as we go into the 2021 season, it seems like it is going to be largely affected by COVID again. Um, you know, there is hope, I guess, on the horizon, but as a close friend of mine in the media likes to say, people heard the word vaccine and they think they're, it's good to go back to normal. Um, a small segment, I guess, of people think that, but how have you seen, um, learnings from last year in and around the league and around the club evolve into what are the, the probably still current and evolving policies for 2021, uh, go forward. You feel like it's, Everybody's got a better grasp. People are more open, or is it stricter? You know, it's a state by state thing, right? Okay. We've been we've been very fortunate here in Utah that it's not as bad as some other places. It it kind of got here later than other places. Right. It it hasn't. There have been bad moments. We've had those spikes. We've had those terrible days. Mm-hmm. You know, where we've been concerned about the the hospital capacity and things like that. Um, but the evolution of how we care for it, I think people are better understanding of it. My colleagues have a better grip on what we need to do. Yeah. Um, I joke around. It's, it's not a good joke, but I joke that I'm no longer a head athletic trainer. I'm a COVID test coordinator. <laughs> That's literally right. like we test. That consumes ev- 90% of your time. A lot. I yeah. mean, we literally test every other day. Wow. And so that means organizing a test, making sure it gets to the lab, making sure I get results, disseminating that information, reacting to anything that comes out of those tests, then planning to go forward. And that's all happening while I'm prepping for the next day for right. the next test. So um, it is. And it's not just the locker room. It's everybody that might 
have a job that entails coming in contact with with the players. Right? Yeah. Players so the le- coaches. the league made us set up tiers. Okay. So there's tier one, tier two, tier three. Tier one is like the players and the staff. You know, yeah. the people that travel, the people that work with the players daily. Okay. So you're talking about our medical staff, the equipment staff, the strength and conditioning staff, the coaches, um, the technical directors, people that are going to interact with the coaches on a yeah. daily basis, whether that's management. So. We had a pool of people that we had to put together into that tier, and they all must adhere to that testing schedule. Mm-hmm. And that's a big interruption to some people's routines and lives. You know, um, it's difficult, but it's yeah. necessary to keep people safe. And we were very fortunate. Um, I can't talk details about numbers and, and yeah. people who had it, obviously, but we were very fortunate to get through the season without major disruption yeah. or problems. Yeah. Um, we have seen more problems in the off season when. The restrictions aren't there and sure. players are out in the world. I, yeah. I, I jokingly call it out in the wild, yeah. right? Yeah. I said that when we left Orlando. We're, we're out of the bubble. We're out in the wild now. Um, there was that initial fear of how are things going to get worse? And then we learned how to manage it kind of here at home. Mm-hmm. Then off season's a whole different thing. I mean, guys are flying around the world, right? They, yeah. There were no restrictions. If guys wanted to go home to their foreign country, they were yeah. allowed to. But then there's now new rules getting back in, how to quarantine in, how to test your way back in. You know, so there's a very structured way to get started, yep. which again is not what coaches and management and players are used to. And right. we just kind of have to walk them through that process of, look, you've got to do step one, two, three, four, five before you can get to day one of training. Yeah. So uh, as we look forward to 2021, April 17th is the weekend that MLS kicks off. The non-CONCACAF teams, I think, have a preseason start date of March 1st. Um, what is the quarantine protocols to uh, to get to that point, I guess, that everybody can start kicking a ball on, on and around March 1st? So it starts with, obviously, avoiding high-risk behavior, right? Yeah. High-risk behavior could also be termed exposures, yeah. right? We talk about things like being at a restaurant being around people that you don't live with, mm. um, going to an indoor concert, being on a commercial flight, right? Yeah, even sure. if you're wearing a mask on a commercial flight, you're yeah. exposed. Yeah. Um, even if it's a short flight, it doesn't have to be an international. So mm. we're trying to ensure that people haven't done that um, prior to entering the building yeah. for a certain amount of time during yeah. that quarantine phase. So we are asking those people to come to town, stay at home, start the testing process. Okay. Our testing process during uh, that time is They'll pull up behind the facility. They'll text me that they're there. I walk out with the tester. They swab them right in their car and they go home yeah. and go back to their their isolation and quarantine. Once we get everybody cleared, once we have a multiple negative COVID tests, okay. once they've served that time period at home, we can then bring them back into the building. But we'll keep testing sure. and then kind of get back into that same rhythm that we did last year of regular testing. And then if something comes up, isolating people, double checking, rerunning tests, mm-hmm. confirming, you know, what we know to make sure that we're keeping everybody as safe as possible. That's awesome. Um, sorry to spend so much time on that, but yeah, I think it's, it's, okay. it's pertinent. And, it's uh, dominating everybody's life right now. Yeah, so. no, it really is. And, and hopefully maybe late in the year we can be back to normal and have fans in the building. And it's our hope. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think there there are special circumstances because of the way the facility is set up in Harriman with RSL, the Monarchs, the Academy kids, the the normal, what would normally be crossover, right, between the staff. Mm-hmm. And you guys have to kind of constantly update and manage the logistics that affect all that interaction. Yeah, we've had to kind of, you know, 
create a mini bubble inside the building, okay. right? There's signs on the doors. If you're not in tier one, do not come through this door. Yeah, sure. You know, if you are in tier three, that is the, the least tested group, if if at all, mm. um, those people are asked to go in a separate entrance. So we have different entrances in the building for you based on who you work for, what tier you're in. Yeah. Um, you know, it's difficult because the RSL as one philosophy yeah. was a physical manifestation in that building. Sure. Right? We're talking yeah. about shared spaces. We're talking yep. about shared fields, yep. shared cafeterias. All of these things were blown up mm-hmm. by COVID. So we've had to spend some time really thinking through how people are going to walk through the building, where they're going to go, um, how to keep them separate, yeah. you know, because one group, like, for instance, last year we were managing four different teams. We had RSL, which had MLS guidelines. We had the Monarchs, which had USL guidelines. Mm-hmm. We had the Royals, who had NWSL guidelines. And then we had the Academy, which had their own separate guidelines. Not all of those meshed up in terms of how often they were tested, what type right. of testing, who administered it. So you couldn't just mix and mingle as you wanted. Mm-hmm. Even if even if the academy was tested X amount of times a week, it may not be the same as the first yeah. team. So you can't just call a kid up and say, hey, come on over and train mm-hmm. with us today because he's not on the same testing schedule. Right. So it complicated like literally every decision anybody mm-hmm. made. And that's kind of where I became the COVID question guy. Yeah, sure. You know, I've got this 60-page document from MLS of how we were going to return to our markets after the bubble. Wow. I've probably gotten 60 more pages of updates since then. Yeah. And it's kind of my job to know that stuff and implement it in the building. And it's, it's a lot. It can be overwhelming at times, but it's the task that I was thrown into. And, and sure. hopefully I've risen to the challenge and been good to our organization. Yeah. You know? No, I, I mean, from the outside, it appears so. So Thank um, you. obviously we'll see what the 2021 season brings. Um, speaking of the facility, obviously, you know, I talk a lot about the infrastructure and relevance that this club has here and how unique that is. Uh, to other MLS teams. Now, it's been a while since I've visited most markets, but Mm -hmm. I still think that for whoever, uh, whatever person or whatever family or group ends up buying RSL, that facility in Harriman and Rio Tinto and not just the infrastructure, but also the local relevance being kind of a big fish in a small pond here um, are massive advantages. Um, Houston, Orlando also... um, currently up for sale in the MLS uh, of the 26 MLS teams, I guess. Um, Austin kicking off. Uh, Don Garber has said that hopefully the sale happens in 2021, but uh, you've been exposed to a lot of different organizations over your career. How would you characterize the resources that um, RSL has for the athletes, for you and your staff, and and compare those to kind of, I would imagine still, and it, it, in some ways, it seems like an arms race, but I, I would imagine RSL still, you know, in the top percentile and, and kind of on the leading edge of some of these innovations. Yeah, I think we, we have great facilities. I mean, obviously, everybody knows about the Harriman facility. We, we have our own stadium. We have an extra practice field. The reality is, for the size market that we are, we are head and shoulders above other teams. Yeah. I, I would call it probably a top five facility. If you look at everything that we have in our facility, right? Let's start with the basics. Two full inside fields mm-hmm. with no poles in the middle. You can <laughs> you know, play a full game of soccer without any problems. There's only, I want to say, one or two teams that have indoor facilities like that, mm-hmm. and they're bubbles. Yeah. Um, then you add all the other components, right? You have a high school for your RSL athletes and yep. the public. You have dormitories. You have 
locker rooms for each of those academy teams. We have a cafeteria. We have executive offices. We have the Monarchs locker room. We have huge weight room, right? right. Our sports medicine side is great. We have in-ground hot and cold tubs. We have an underwater therapy treadmill. Mm. We have a large room for all of the work that we need to do. Huge locker room for the guys. Video seating. I mean, all of these things combined put us head and shoulders. Other teams may have one or two of those pieces, yeah. but I think we're one of the few teams that kind of puts it all together in a facility, and that's a that's a good draw, right? Let's be honest. We're in the age of free agency, right? You want to yep. sell people on facilities and the lifestyle and where they live. It's a beautiful place to live. I mean, it's a little secret that nobody wants right. to, to spread out to the world, but I knew it from visiting here. It's one sure. of the draws of why I wanted to come here, you yeah. know? So I think with the facilities and the location – the stadium, all that stuff, we're, we're probably in a top five situation in terms of infrastructure. And that's kind of where I wanted to go next is how did you find out about the possibility of moving here from Houston? And um, obviously you had been here mm -hmm. you know, as part of the visiting team um, delegation or whatever. But uh, I guess kind of walk me through that process. Sure. So at the time, um, Craig was the Craig Weibel was the general manager. Mm -hmm. Um, this is kind of a small business, right? You right. know people. We know each other, you know? Yeah, We've sure. known each other for a long time. Uh, Craig was an athlete in Colorado. We used to call him up from the Sounders A-League team. That's right. And he'd sit the bench next to me just waiting <laughs> to get into a game. He'd never get in because he was just being called up as a extra roster spot. Right. So we got to know each other. So I've known Craig for a number of years. So I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So it was a it was a position that came open when the the previous uh, athletic trainer decided to uh, take another job that give him some more time with his family, right. and so it was something that I was uh, interested in in the possibility. Um, my wife's from Denver, okay. right? We we had spent a decade in Houston, kind of had our fill of heat and humidity. Yeah. Um, the organization had been nothing but great to me over the years, but we just felt like it was time for a change, a chance to get back out in the Mountain West, get her closer to her family, mm -hmm. so she can take a. 45-minute flight to Denver yeah, or, or a long-day drive to get back there. Uh, we wanted to see mountains and snow. So when the opportunity came up, it was something that we, we looked into, and uh, it worked out, um, and I'm, I'm very happy. I joke that I was nine years in Colorado, 10 in Houston. I'm going to want to do at least 11 here. <laughs> there you go. Um, did Pablo Mastroeni call you when he was uh, talking to Freddie and Elliot and Rob about uh, – the assistant coach opening. He didn't give me a call. We we caught up when he got here, okay. right? So they were they were working it out on their own. Some of those things are still kind of hush hush, top secret. You yeah. know, I, you know, you may work in the organization, but you don't know about everything sure. that's going on. So I'd heard the rumors, and I was like, oh, I didn't know he was yeah. going to leave Houston. I joked with him when he got here that he's been chasing me because <laughs> we were in Colorado together. And right. then, then he went to Houston where I had been, yep. and now I'm here, and he showed up. But no, it's uh, that's one of the. Uh, after effects of being in the league for so long, you start to see players whose sure. careers turn into scouts or yeah. coaches or management, you know? So, you know, whether it's Craig or it's Pablo, yeah. you know, you see these guys as they evolve in their careers, they, they come around and MLS can, can tend to be a small world, right? Yeah, 100%. I think it's still uh, a funny concept for a lot of RSL fans, at least until they see him on that bench the first few uh, sure. games uh, because of – you know, his history with Colorado, sure. and you were there, right? Oh, yeah. The night that, that Mastroeni and uh, Dave Checkett's got in a little uh, tussle. Clint yeah. Mathis was the guy who's played on both sides of the rivalry. Yeah. 
uh, was the guy trying to break them up and be the peacemaker, which is funny. I mean, I love Clint, but yeah. peacemaker is not the first thing I think of when I think of him. Not when you think of Cletus, no. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, I've been telling people since Pablo, and I haven't seen Pablo yet since he got to town, but that that rivalry was kind of made that night, I think, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And I remember, you know, being the guy, you know, Dave Checkers is telling me, like, to fire off this um, incendiary statement and Jeff Plush and Jurgen Manka are like, please don't put that statement out. And, yeah. but looking back at those days, so I just, you know, what do you, what are your memories of, of Pablo as a player sure. of kind of the Rocky mountain cup rivalry and, and just, again, I hate to keep going back to this theme, but we have to like the growth in the 13 seasons since that night has been astounding. Yeah, I mean, I I've been on both sides of this rivalry, right? Yeah. Like I was there, I was I think we were your uh first opponent to yep. open the stadium, right? Yep, exactly. I remember watching Dunny spike that flag and thinking I hate that guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, now he's a great guy, <laughs> you know. We'll we'll chit-chat when he's around and he'll shoot me a text and ask me questions, but yeah. you know, y- you can be on both sides of that rivalry, but yeah, it really did kind of blow up with that intensity, but mm. but that's Pablo, you know, and that was Kyle to a certain degree sure. as well. I mean, this is what made them great players is that fire in their belly that's just there and they they want to compete you know they want to yeah. battle against whoever's on the other side and that's that's a little bit of what makes teams special right mm. you fight for the guy on the the left and the right of you and your your teammates matter the most and and this may sound weird but it's almost like the crest doesn't matter it's the guys on the field with you that matter mm. right so there's that intensity sure. so i don't know sometimes fans you know can't see that you know they see somebody switching like oh you know i'm <laughs> you know, they've got all those sayings, what, Dallas till I die, or, yeah, you know, sure. I'm, I'm RSL till I die. Yeah. I understand that as a fan, some, yeah. especially for those fans who grew up here. Yeah. But for the players, the, they may be on both sides of that rivalry, mm-hmm. but they're fully invested on the side that they're with when they're in that yeah, battle. Yeah, they're fighting for the guy next to them. Yeah, because yeah, first and people, people will see that in Pablo as a coach. They saw it as a player, yeah. right? He's going to be that fiery, intense guy. He's going to bring that passion to everything that he does. Just the same way that Kyle brought that same intensity yep. to both sides of that rivalry. Or like you said, like uh, Clint Mathis did, you mm-hmm. know, those guys are going to compete with the guys around them while they're on the field. And that's what stirs up those rivalries and gets the fans going. So, yeah, it's, it's good to see, you know. Yeah. Um, what uh, I've often thought during my time in this business. So th- there's two places I want to go with you right now. Um, do you still have fandom left? of any team in any sport after being in the business so long? Yeah. It, it's a weird one, right? Like, um, people go, Oh, you have the greatest job ever. You know, yeah. it's awesome. I go, there are days it's a job. Yeah. Right. And everybody hates their job every once in a while. You know, I have a great job. It's, it's taking me all over the world, giving me great experiences, but ultimately sometimes you, you look at it as a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of fandom, yes, I, uh, I'm an Arsenal fan. So I okay. guess I'm a glutton for punishment. Yeah, sure. Having having a team that I chase or follow in the league that I work in is a little weird. Right. Obviously, you're you're like I like I said about Pablo or Kyle or any of the guys on yeah. both sides. You're fully invested in where you're at. Sure. Right. I'm invested in RSL. This yeah. is this is my job. This is my home. Mm-hmm. My wife and I live here. Yeah. You know, this is something I'm going to work hard for because that's what we're asked to do and that's mm-hmm. what we want to do. Um, but fandom, I mean, it's kind of weird, right? Like you spend so much time on the inside of locker rooms yeah. and on the inside of organizations, it just, it takes on a little bit of a different yeah. tone and only people who've been in the business kind of understand that. And I think you do understand that. Yeah. Um, I think the average fan, I hope they don't take offense to that, right? Yeah. Because it is a passion for them, but it is a 
day-to-day life occupation and it's an occupation and it changes a little bit right you see a little bit of everything you see the good the bad you see the the public face of the athlete and you see the private Mm. you know person that he is in the locker room or away from the limelight so it can kind of change um how it is you you don't want to be a fanboy right like one of the things I, i say all the time is win or lose i've got a job to do yeah Right. Yeah. There are those days I'm pissed off that we've lost the game. Sure. I'm just as mad as the the guys. And, and it sometimes is worse because I can't get on the field and do anything. Yeah. You just yeah. sit there and watch it. But the, the final whistle blows. You've got things you got to do. Yeah. You've got to take care of the guys that got hurt in the game. You've got to pack up that room and, and get back to the airport. Sure. You've got to start planning the next day. You know, you're on that flight home like this year, right? We yeah. fly home immediately after games. Right. You're on that flight home. And yeah, you want to grab some sleep, but you're thinking to yourself, what do I need to do tomorrow? What's coming mm-hmm. the next day? Like there's this marathon of sprints, I call it, in this league. <laughs> you you sprint from week to week, game yeah. to game, and before you know it, you've gone 34, 40 weeks, right. and you're like, where'd the year go? Yeah. Right? No, it's crazy. You and get that, caught up in it sometimes. And you, I, I imagine hopefully your brain is a little more um, clarity, you know, is full of clarity more than mine, but all these years run together now. And so yeah. I, I literally have to look at spreadsheets that I built or other mm-hmm. things to be able to say, oh, that was 2011 or that was 2013 because now it's just like mush. But, um, I, you know, my fandom for RSL specifically, one, we built this club out of thin air. Sure. So that that drives a lot of the passion. Um, but also, like you just said, my job, you know, being in the media side of things was easier if the team succeeded. So same here. We because, say when you win, nothing hurts. No, right? exactly. And winning is the one thing you can't control. And it's the one thing that covers up all, all your sins. other sins or shortcomings or whatever you want to call them. Yep. And, um, and it's fascinating. Cause I, I mean, I remember the goal, this is going back to the Rapids days. So I had gone to the league in March of 97 and Colorado lost, uh, MLS cup 97 mm-hmm. at DC. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a relationship with Marcelo Balboa, but mm-hmm. like, that was the first time I ever had to go into a absolute, you know, morgue mausoleum of a yeah. locker room and ask a guy like to look past this. And you know, again, ten minutes after the game, oh, yeah. hey, we need you for this press conference. Yep. Like it was the same as I remember walking into the RSL locker room after losing the shootout in MLS Cup twenty thirteen in Kansas City and and I had prepped Kyle that yep. win or lose, you know, he's the captain, he's our face. He was going to have to have to, you know, have league media obligations. Mm-hmm. And I didn't take it personally, but he basically said, <laughs> you and everybody else can F right off right now. You yeah. know, he was just like the whole locker room was inconsolable. And I was too, but it's just like you got to kind of flip that switch. So I guess that's a good segue. And I'm, I guess part of my fandom question was I didn't know if you had anybody outside of soccer that, you allowed yourself like I'm I'm still an unabashed Broncos fan. Yeah. I've gotten back into the NBA a little bit. I worked for the Nuggets when I was in college, so seeing them do well has kind of rekindled some old memories, but I didn't pay attention to the NBA cuz I didn't have time. Like we're building yeah. this thing here um for so long and like I I brag and sometimes it's good. I'm just an MLS snob. Like I <laughs> I'll watch an EPL game here or there, but and like I Two Decembers ago, I had the fortune to go visit some former MLS employees or RSL employees at Barnsley, and we went to some Man U games, and that was cool. Yeah. But I guess I've been in the business so long, like 
I don't necessarily want to go spend a Wednesday night or a Saturday night in a stadium or an arena because my mind is looking at sponsor signage or game day operations or, you know, some of that off the field stuff. And that's not fun. I, I, I'm the same way. Like <laughs> my wife, my wife will tell you, I'll come home and I'll, I'll, I'll sit and watch a soccer game. She's yeah. like, you have soccer all the time. I'm yeah. like, yeah, but I just, I still like watching it. Yeah. I'll watch every MLS game that's on TV yeah. or on the, yeah. on the streams. Cause you know, I'm interested in what's going on, yeah. but I think like you, you, you sometimes look at it with a slightly different eye. Yeah. Like I'm watching going, okay, what are they doing on the sideline? Or, you know, Hey, that guy got hurt. How did he handle that? Or, Oh, this team does this slightly different than us. It's almost like a, an analysis or review of, you know, what can I glean off of what's going on here to make us better? Yeah. But I'll still watch it. My wife yeah. cracks up that I'll watch soccer yeah. on a Saturday, my one off day, in the, <laughs> you know, or on a Sunday, sorry, yeah. our one off day after a game. And you know, I'm not a not saying that I'm a fan of the teams that are on there, but I'll watch it because it's yeah. a professional interest. Of yeah, mine, sure. It's well, what it's, you do. it's almost it's it behooves you to kind of be aware of of what else is happening. Yeah. Um, and that's you know one of the things I've always said about people in your position. Um, you guys are as much a psychiatrist, psychologist as as you are a, a an expert on anatomy and and recovery and all the other things that go in. Uh, to your job and obviously like we talked about earlier COVID adds a whole nother layer but you know I imagine winning uh, for a team and a club covers up all sins health probably covers up a lot of sins yeah um, both mental physical emotional etc and I mean you're the guy you and your staff are the are the people that are trying to get people back Mm -hmm. so that they can perform at a at a world-class level Mm -hmm. With the backdrop, probably that most athletes learn at some point along the way that their window may not be as wide open as 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 it is if if they had pursued another occupation. So, I guess share with us a little bit about about that aspect of having to be, um, you know, a a, a guide from a health standpoint, but being a friend, a mentor. Uh, just a sounding board or, you know, a, a compassionate shoulder for, for these guys and, and athletes, uh, regardless of gender, as they, as they try to grow and recover and pursue. Yeah. I mean, being an athletic trainer, you, you spend a lot of time with athletes, right? And yep. Sometimes you spend some of their worst days with mm-hmm. them, right? When things have gone wrong or they've had a serious injury. I mean, throughout my career, I've been fortunate that athletes have trusted me or confided in me. Same with my staff. You know, Mm -hmm. we are that person who is there when things aren't going well. Um, it's a privilege. It's an, it's an honor for them to trust us in those moments. That's not to say that every athlete is somebody I have deep intimate, you know, conversations about, you know, Hey, how you feeling? You know, some guys just, you don't have that interaction with them, but it is, um, it is one of those things that you have to recognize in the business. I kind of, Regret not taking more sports psychology classes. Yeah. Maybe when I was in undergrad, um, you take a few, right? Sure. Just so you have a basic understanding. But you see these guys when they're at their worst, you know, after they've lost a game or they've had a significant injury or they have had a surgery or, you know, I've seen guys. I, I've been in a room when a doctor's told a player his career's over. Yeah. You know, those those are tough moments. Ugh. And, you know, I say none of the things I learned in athletic training classes taught me how to do that. It was, it was more how my parents raised me and how you yeah. treat people as humans. Sure. And you have to remind yourself, I mean, as tough as pro sports can be, as much of a business as it can be, you try to remind yourself, these are people with feelings and, and COVID's kind of really reminded me of that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not trying to circle back to COVID no, again, but you, you learn that you've got to listen to what they're saying and 
and be there for them. Some people may not ever open up to you. Yeah. That's fine. I don't take offense to that. Sure. Um, but yeah, you're, you can be on that table. It's almost like a, a truth pill, right? Mm. They lay on that table and sometimes they start saying things that they never would say in front of anybody else. Yeah. Um, and so it is a, it's a unique privilege and one that I don't take lightly yeah. um, because you do need an athlete's trust and confidence. Um, you, you never want to sell them out. You never want to run to the coaches and say, oh, he's saying this, he's saying that. That's that's death for an athletic trainer in terms of respect. Yeah. And you need to be there for them and, and support them in those those tough times. So um, we see that on a, on a, you know, fairly regular basis. Yeah. The the staff does a great job of interacting with our players and, and trying to be there for them. Sometimes you've got to be that guy that motivates him because he doesn't want to do the sure. work. Sure. Some days you got to be there pulling the reins back because he's trying to do too much too soon. Mm. There's that kind of give and take of of the role. So, yeah, it's a uh, it's a unique privilege, like I said, and yeah. uh, one that I hope that we we continue to fulfill for our guys. I imagine when you're when you're in that situation and you're trying to help an athlete attain uh, a streamlined optimum performance. Mm-hmm. What and and let's kind of think about this in pre-COVID or non-COVID terms. But sure. you know, we've got guys that are flying all over the globe to represent their national teams. Yep. Um, you've got young guys that are learning how to be a pro, mm-hmm. and you've got everybody in between. You've got to balance what you think their needs are with you know a coach's demand. Yep. And I know now you have sports scientists, nutritionists, mm-hmm. other things that are still relatively new to our sport and our league. But, um, I mean, how? what are maybe some of the unique challenges and opportunities when you're helping a guy like Albert perform for RSL, but also, like, he's taking these 18-hour flights, I imagine, or, you know, 12-hour flights for pretty big opportunities that could mean a lot for him, his family, his country, and his career. Yeah, things have changed. Like this yeah. is kind of that theme of what you know, early on in the league versus now. Yeah. Like when I started in the league, a lot of teams had one athletic trainer. You did everything. You were the nutritionist, the sports yeah. psychologist, the athletic trainer, the massage therapist. You did everything. You mm. you know, kind of filled all those roles. And athletic training as a career preps you for a lot of that. Yeah, sure. But you're not a specialist in it. Yeah. We've now expanded, right? So now we have athletic trainers, we have strength and conditioning coaches, we have sports scientists, we have a nutritionist, we have a massage therapist. We have mental skills coaches mm. that are helping them with their, their yeah. confidence and, and on-field performance. So it's now a group effort when it comes right. to handling our players, and you're trying to help them do their best. And, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of planning that can go into this. Some national teams communicate with you, so you mm. know, hey, this is what he's been doing. You can do it. <laughs> then you got other people. You don't even know he's called up until he's got a ticket the next morning to leave to yeah. go to his country. Yep. So it's it's a challenge, right? But. Um, the challenge for me, the challenge for us is as we get bigger and bigger to not lose that ability to do what's best for the athlete, mm-hmm. um, and, and take care of them. I mean, athletes have desires too, right? Yeah. We got guys that want to be on that Olympic team this coming year, sure. right? They also want to be starters for our team. And yeah. sometimes those are diametrically opposed yeah, sure. in terms of what's going on, you know, and it's, a, it's a tough one. Our goal as a staff is always to be the guys there to be the support, right? Mm-hmm. As athletic trainers, we have always been the silent, supportive, behind the scenes right. type of people. That's our job. Yep. I didn't go into this business to be seen, right? Yeah, sure. I jokingly say, if you see me working on a Saturday, something's gone something's wrong. Something's wrong, yeah. You don't want to see me run onto the field. You yeah. want to see me just sitting there 
and standing up and clapping when we score. You don't want to see anything else. Yeah. We want our work to be behind the scenes Monday through Friday when nobody sees it, you know, in yeah. that in that gym, in that training room, sure. in that dark arena that nobody's paying attention to. Yeah. Like that's where the work should be done so that the players can go out and and do what they love mm-hmm. on a Saturday night. Um, I imagine talking through this with you, one of the other more unique dynamics, not that it was impossible, but it was probably rare in the early days. I mean, you've got 18-year-olds in your locker room or younger, and you've got 35-year-olds in your locker room. Um, And obviously, as we just talked about, there's more resources to help manage that. But how, um, I guess, eye-opening are those experiences? Because those are very different stages of life. Completely different. Um, On and off the field. The youngest I've had, I think we had a 16-year-old, 16 or 17. When when we got into um, when I get into Colorado, Kyle yeah. was coming off the under 17s. Right, okay. right. Um, one of his teammates, Seth Trembley, yeah, sure. was a Colorado kid. Yeah. So we had him going to prom in the middle of the season. Yeah. Right, you know, it's weird. I do remember that. But then I go to a team like Houston, and I've got a goalie who's 40 years old. Wow. He's older than me, <laughs> and so I'm dealing with somebody who's older than me. Yep. You know, Pat's now a GM in in Columbus. Right. But it's one of those things where there there are some weird dynamics, right? Yeah. You talked about coming alongside, being a mentor, a friend, a brother. Like sometimes you have to have a different role for each athlete. Yeah. There's people that are, well, they used to be my age. I'm old now. <laughs> but they used to be my age, right? And I saw them as peers. And yeah. we would maybe even hang out outside of work. Yeah. But then there's others now, like I see a lot of these academy kids and I go, I'm old enough to be your dad. Yeah. And I kind of catch myself. Maybe I'm turning into an old man, like <laughs> tossing out like dad jokes and, yeah, sure. and bad fatherly advice. But, you know, some sometimes that's what's needed, right? You know, we have a, a growing emphasis on the youth in this organization, which I think is great, right? Because mm-hmm. obviously it gives them a chance to, to live out their dreams at an earlier age. But you also have to remember kind of sometimes where they are in life, yeah. right? What were we like when we were 18? Not responsible. Right. Like, <laughs> and I'm not saying that our guys are all horrible, but I'm just saying they're, they're 18, 19. Like, sometimes you just yeah. want to be a kid and you want to do things. And so, yeah, those dynamics are different, like, from player to player. You just, you've got to meet them where they are, right? Mm. You know, there's a guy who's married, got a kid, he's got yeah. one on the way, he's super responsible. And then you got a 21-year-old kid who's single and just enjoying life mm. and you know, he's fun loving. I mean, you just, you meet them where they are and, and learn to deal with their unique personalities. What, um, switching gears here a little bit, what, uh, how did your perception of this club or this community change from when you were in Colorado or Houston, uh, to now that you've been here for four years? Yeah. So, I mean, from the outside, right. RSL, yeah. the, you remember the early years, the, the Christ, the, yeah. the, the family mentality, the, yeah. We're all in this together. It seemed like a, a real tight, close-knit, you know, organization. Mm-hmm. And from the outside, that's that's what I was expecting when I got here. Yeah. Obviously, we've gone through some some troubles, right? Like, I don't think that's uh, yeah. something anybody doesn't recognize. But I think deep at the heart of this club, there's still good people who mm-hmm. care, mm-hmm. you know? And it's taken some painful moments to get to the point where it's the people who care who are being heard or still around or mm-hmm. listened to. Um it, it's, I'll never say it's my club, but I'm a part of the club, yeah, right? Yeah. And I don't know how much I'll play in its history, but I want to be a part of one of those people who behind the scenes is one of the good guys working hard to make this club mm-hmm. what it is. Nobody wants to work for a bad job, right? right? Nobody wants to say, oh, you work for that organization, they're known as the worst, or they're not any good, or they've got this, you know? It stings a lot of us in the organization, some of the things that we've gone through. Mm-hmm. And we hate to be painted with that big brush. Yeah, sure. 
because there are people, like I said, there are good people in this organization. We're adding new people who are good people. Yeah. And that's that's been helpful because I think it will turn the reputation back around to where it was with the, I saw from the outside. Mm-hmm. This we're in this together. We're a club. We're a family. And I, I think it's headed for better days. Yeah. How would you um, characterize, let's say, Freddie's growth from yeah. uh, when you arrived in 2018, and you know he's he's uh, he's somebody that Mike Pecky leaned on quite mm-hmm. heavily um, to him growing as kind of a leader of men, which he always has, right? Yeah. He was at the Academy and he's Monarchs, but, um, you know, he's got a huge opportunity and I think, uh, he's had the opportunity now to kind of reshape the staff going mm-hmm. into 2021. Yeah. Freddie's great. You know, Freddie has been with this organization from way back in the day, mm-hmm. starting at the bottom rung and kind of working his way up to where he is. Yeah. That's one of the themes of this organization, right? Is, sure. is look inside, grow from inside. We try to use that same approach with our staff. Okay. We hire seasonal interns that turn into trainers for the academy, and yep. sometimes they get promoted up into the monarchs. Yep. You know, but Freddie's kind of grown over those days. Um, it it changes though, right? When you're an academy coach, you're you're coaching little kids, and you can yep. tell them what to do and be a little bit more parental. Then you you move into the monarchs, you're starting mm-hmm. to get guys who are younger pros. It even changes when you're an assistant versus a head coach. Sure. Like if, if you see the inside workings of the team. A head coach nowadays, again, or big organization, big staff, yeah. they've got to be more of a manager, like they call mm, it in England, right? right sure. You're managing everything that's going on. You may not be the X's and O guys anymore, right? Right. You may not be that guy that is plotting out each session. So he's had to, to flex and change in that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think he's doing a great job with that. Um, obviously, last year was just a crazy year for us in terms of yeah. how the season went. And it really stunted the ability, I think, for the coaches at times to get a good consistent year out of everybody yeah you know because everybody's head well, was almost kind of all into over three parts and you oh, yeah. the bubble and then obviously covid and a lot of fits and starts so stunted i think is a word i often use yeah thinking about last year yeah it was weird i mean it was like we had a preseason and then we had a long period of just sitting around doing nothing and then we went to the bubble which was like a mini you yeah. know test of everybody's mental skills to to sure. bear through all those yeah. days and then it's like okay now we're gonna have a regular season so yeah it was weird but you know, I think Freddie handled it well. The guys, they, they like Freddie. Mm-hmm. He's always been really good with the guys on, on an yeah. individual basis. And he's, you know, as a head coach, I think he's not really stepped a foot wrong in terms of in the locker room, how he handles things. Right. So, yeah, he's been he's been great to work with. And he's, from my perspective, from the medical side, he's yeah. been very um, listening, very accommodating. Right. Um, Freddie, you know, he's listening to the people in the areas that are in charge yeah. of those departments because he knows he's not the expert in medical or in sports science or in strength and conditioning. And he's taking that and he's, again, managing that group together. You mean all coaches don't listen to the medical staff? Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I could tell some stories. No, let's, but let's not get you in trouble. Yeah, I still like want to. Small, small world. Yeah, I still want to work 11 years in, in the, more in this <laughs> That's league. That's right. <laughs> um, what is your favorite RSL memory Your your three years here? Wow. Uh I mean, I have on the field, I, off the field. I I would probably just have to go to that L.A. playoff game, you know, like the Krylock, the Krylock karate, karate kick. Yeah. The I mean, the you know, L.A. is uh, obviously the golden child right now sure. of MLS, and MLS loves to to build up their big markets and their big players. And like, if you're an RSL fan, like that's the kind of win you love, yeah. right? It's the little guy beating the big guy. Sure. When, 
everybody wrote us off. Yeah. Like nobody thought we would win that game, yeah. right? Everybody thought, ah, whatever, they're just going to roll over. You know, LA's much superior team. Those kind of wins, that was, those are so deeply satisfying, yeah. right? So to, to be there on the field when that happened and, yeah, it was kind of awesome <laughs> seeing that on the Super Bowl commercial, you know? And yeah. Everybody running around. So, yeah, that was, that was probably the, the on-field highlight for me, definitely. Um, what is your probably darkest moment? Not not RSL because I don't imagine. Oh yeah, maybe you've had some, but I I guess me not knowing exactly sure. your path, like I can't imagine maybe like what you had to go through with Brian Mullen in Colorado, mm-hmm. you know, after the Zakawani tackle. Yeah, you know, for me, probably probably the hardest thing for me was um, early on in my career had an athlete that. Literally, I was like I was saying earlier. Mm-hmm. I was in the office when the doctor told him your career is oh, over. Yeah, I'm talking about like a 25 year old guy, mm. right? You look at him; he looks super fit. He looked like he was the healthiest guy in the world, but he had a series of concussions and was having significant issues oh, because wow. of it. And that's tough to take, you know. Um, at a he, time probably when concussions weren't fully We weren't as understood. good as we are now. Yeah, I mean, we have yeah. so many more things that we understand, better ways to test and yeah. and evaluate them. Back then, I mean, things were a bit simpler, still a little bit unknown. Mm. But to hear that was, obviously, he's crushed, but I'm crushed for him, right. you know? And, and just your heart breaks for a guy because all he's wanted to do is play pro yeah. soccer and he's two years out of college oh. and it's over, right? And it's like, yeah. oh, what do I do with myself? And- those are some really dark moments, you know, mm-hmm. and I've tried, you know, you have, you have minor darker moments, players getting cut, you're driving them to an exit physical, yeah. right? I, I try to be a good person and a compassionate person in that moment because mm-hmm. they're having their worst day, yeah. you know, and I'm, I'm a part of it because I have to be there for an exit physical or I have to be there because they're having surgery. Yeah. You know, there, there's those moments that, that weigh heavily on you in this business, mm-hmm. but you try to focus on the on the greater ones. You know, guy gets back from an injury, runs on the field, yeah. scores a game winning goal. Yeah. You know, those that's those like Willis the, Reed moments. Exactly. Yeah. That's like the, the trainer's dream is the guy he <laughs> wins, he runs to the sideline, he jumps yeah. into the trainer's arm. No, that never happens. <laughs> um but no, do you, it's do you have a a story where a guy, you know, you helped a guy come back from something that you may not have really thought or believed, or he or she may not have thought or believed that was recoverable? Um you know, early in my career, we had a guy, Wes Hart, um, tore an Achilles mm. in a game, like first week of the season, I think, down the old Miami uh, yeah. Fusion Stadium. And that's a significant injury. He was a young guy, not common for people under 30 to tear an Achilles, right. but he did it. And I just remember thinking, man, this is a significant injury. Like, mm. I don't know if he's going to bounce back from this. And we spent a good six plus months working to get him back. I mean, things were a little bit slower back then. They've yeah. got some newer surgical techniques that help guys get back faster, but it was one of those things that you didn't know. And he came back and he ended up finishing the season. I mean, this is MLS, That's right? Crazy. Those seasons were super long yeah. back then. You played like a game a week for like, you know, six months, eight months or something. That but... reminds me of when Javier Morales had his um, ankle foot injury mm-hmm. in May of 2011. You know, he wasn't himself probably for a year, but he did make it back for the last few games yeah. that October, November, which was insane. Yeah. Um, Especially considering how like gruesome the optics were. Yep. At that now, I think as far as dislocations go, he didn't have a lot of the ligament 
right. damage and some of the other things that, that, that typically you would expect. Yeah, those, those are great moments as an athletic trainer, you yeah. know, seeing somebody come back and knowing that you, you've been there to help them put in the work. Like, I don't do the work. They've right. got to do the work. Yeah. Right. And it, it feels good to say, I helped that guy. Sure. Right. If there's a, a moment of pride as an athletic trainer where you can kind of toot your horns like, hey, I helped that guy, yeah. you know, and that's all we want as athletic trainers because yeah. we were, like I said, we don't run on the field. I don't kick a ball. Yeah. You don't want to see my soccer skills. They're not good. Right. <laughs> we want to help the guys that are talented yeah. to do this. And that's the fun part of the job is to being able to assist these guys in, in living out their dreams and, you know, running around on that field and, and winning games. Is there anything in particular that you are most excited about for the 2021 season? Well, I'm just, I'm excited for a full season of games, you yeah. know, not that kind of disjointed. I'm excited for the chance for fans to be back, you yeah. know, if we get to the point where like vaccines or the infection rate is dropping and we can get to that point. Like yeah. I, I was in MLS when stadiums were empty because nobody wanted to go. Right Now I'm in MLS when they're not allowed to go. Yeah. And it's almost like drags me back to those days that were kind of sad, like, I remember playing in the old Kansas City Stadium, right? Yeah. Patrick Mahomes fills that with 50, 60,000 people. Sure. And, you know, back then they'd get 2,000 soccer fans yeah. in that place. It was, a, it was a cave. I remember our inaugural season, I was down uh, near one of the tunnels in Arrowhead. And these, you know, I just had an RSL polo on. I think I was waiting by the locker room to line up the halftime interview or something. And these fans are just killing me. And yeah. it was, and I feel guilty about it now, but at the time... You know, there were a lot of rumors that they were going somewhere yep. else. And I was, my my uh, retort was basically, after enduring uh, verbal abuse, was have fun in Tulsa next year. Because yeah. <laughs> that's where they were going. But It's funny to me when, But think like, about those dark days, Kansas City, because yeah. they went from Arrowhead and they played in that baseball stadium. The but then they T-bones. Re, then they Then they rebrand and they built a stadium where I feel like, and I haven't been there probably since 15 or 16, but... Um, there are not too many details missed in that facility. No, that's a that's a good stadium. I yeah. really like that. You know, when it comes to like the shiny bits and pieces and did it right, yeah. that's a good one. LAFC is another good one. Um, it, you know, they've just they've learned the lessons that other teams who've already built right. either made mistakes or they learned from them. Sure. And some of those newer stadiums, they're just great. It's I mean, just they're proof awesome. That the the dark days don't last forever. No, no, th- things can change. Things yeah. can turn around. I mean, isn't that the beauty of sports? Yeah. Right. Like it's short term memory. Who cares about last year? It's just what's next yeah. and what you have coming. Well, and I've I've mentioned this a few times with some different people, but I think we're lucky that MLS everybody feels like we do right now on the eve of a season, you know. Of course. And there's so many leagues and sports, and you know, EPL is the one everybody brings up. But you've got four teams out of yeah. eighteen or twenty or however many that really have a chance. But yeah. not an MLS. The the parity uh, driven MLS is great. Yeah. And if the Galaxy have to miss out on uh, on success one more year, that's probably good for everybody. <laughs> um, Always good to beat those big glamour clubs, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, Theron, I can't wait to have you back again as we get into the 2021 season. Hopefully uh, we can get two vaccine doses for everybody in Utah and 20,000 people back at Rio Tinto. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate All right, it. I really always. Do. And next time you're back, I, I think uh, – I want to get into the mythology and the accuracy of uh, Brian Dunseth and David James when it comes to injury speculation on the air. <laughs> Glad to help out. <laughs> Just kidding. That's uh, Theron Enns, head athletic trainer, now director of sports, sports medicine. medicine. Yeah. Um, Sounds more impressive. Next time we'll talk about uh, 
you know, kind of one of the other things too is obviously RSL getting a new uh, um, health partner, which uh, could expand some of the resources potentially. Uh, we'll talk about how that affects you and your staff. So a lot to look forward to over, as we've referenced, an interminable MLS season. But it's good to get back up and going. So thanks for uh, listening. That is the latest episode, Bleeding Claret and Cobalt, with RSL guest Theron Inns. All right, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to connect with us, please do on social media, at Claret Cobalt. On Twitter, at Claret Cobalt. On Instagram, we're always up for your thoughts, a little banter, corrections and omissions, your guest suggestions, your favorite RSL memories, or whatever. Uh, we do also have the opportunity for you to reach out to us through the message button at anchor.fm slash Claret and Cobalt or via email rsltray at gmail. Dot com. This show is produced independently by Trey Fitzgerald and Mountaineer Media, recorded at Mountaineer Studios in Draper, Utah. The views expressed here on this show are our own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions or positions of Real Salt Lake. Please download, rate, share, subscribe, and provide those comments. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you very soon.